You know how much I like talking about holistic health because it goes together with what's happening with us emotionally. You just can't escape that. So my guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Hughes, and she has a unique conversation, a unique a set of skills that cause that conversation that is beyond the medical model alone. So I'm excited to be talking to her today. So stay tuned and tell your friends to listen in quick. Welcome to Emotional Savvy, the Relationship Help Show. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. If you're ready to increase your confidence in conversations and conflict, deepen your self-awareness, expand your connectedness, and enrich your relationship with yourself and other humans you care about, and even those you wish you didn't, you're in the right place. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome. As I said, I'm so glad that you're here. If you joined me before, I'm so glad you found value and returned. And if you're brand new, welcome, welcome, welcome. I do my best to find the things that are going to help you create the very best relationship with yourself and with other humans, even those you're not so sure you'd like to be in relationship with. So this is very important. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Hughes, and you can find her at elizabethhughes, dot com. Oh, no, that's wrong. It's elizabethhughesmd.com. So busy spelling. I almost made that mistake. So elizabethhughesmd.com. So if you want to go there and learn more about her right this second, feel free to do that. You now know how. And we're going to be having a wonderful conversation about so many ways that we can improve our health. So welcome to the program, Elizabeth. Thank you. Oh, it's so fun to be here. (laughs) I just love your introduction about having relationships with people you don't think you want to have good ones with. It's important. (laughs) Well, it is important because sometimes we were raised by or raised with those people we no longer want to have relationships. Relationships with, <laughs> and we've got that big looming should somewhere in our in our background. Um, I've talked about it before, and I won't belabor the point today. But you know, sometimes it's really a good idea to get rid of the shoulds in your life around people, especially if they're toxic. So let me tell everybody a little bit about what Dr. Elizabeth Hughes wants you to know about her. So I'm going to read it, and it says. Dr. Elizabeth Hughes is a board-certified dermatologist, a health coach, an energy medicine practitioner, and a registered yoga teacher. Can you tell why I'm excited now? For those of you who know me, you know immediately why. And after treating thousands of patients with stress-related illnesses... Remember, you're going to have one of those in high likelihood if you've been with a hijackal. And having her own life nearly ruined by stress, she vowed to find a better solution than what conventional medicine offers. Me too. Yay, Elizabeth. So Dr. Hughes has developed a revolutionary approach to stress reduction based on establishing trust in the human body. Did you, did you hear that? On establishing trust in the human body 
She believes that once each person has cultivated a deep and abiding trust in the power of the human body, our experience of health and illness will change for the better forever. Yay! We want some of that. So tell us your story. What is it that caused you to be so expansive, to go beyond allopathic medicine, to look at alternative and natural medicines? Well, um, it, it really was my own experience of illness. Uh, you know, when I, by about 10 years after I finished my residency, uh, I was chronically exhausted. I, I suppose if you had looked at it, I probably would have had many of the diagnostics of chronic fatigue syndrome. I had uh, difficulty sleeping. I had chronic pain in one hip. I was having anxiety. I, well, I had anxiety for years because I thought that's how you get through life. I don't think you can get through medical school without an anxiety disorder. But I started having full-on panic attacks that just sort of floored mm. me. And what was happening was I was doing everything right. I was eating well. I was trying to get enough sleep. I wasn't drinking too much. I, you know, I was doing all of the conventional stuff right. And it wasn't working. Like it just, it wasn't working at all. And no matter what I did, it, it, uh, I almost felt worse. Like there was this sort of sense of blame, like, shouldn't I do something different? Why can't I, Dr. Hughes, figure this out? And I realized that I was not trained to really take care of these things. There's no, there's no section in basic, you know, not uh, basic medical school on stress. There's really nothing, like there's no chapter in a textbook. You know, you have your you know, months of like, we're going to study the heart and we're going to study the intestines. There's no study the, you know, the adrenal glands. What do the adrenal glands do? There's no studying of the, like how emotions affect your health. None of that. That's all the evidence is out there, but it's all in the background. But I think the thing that really did it for me is one day I was reading a backlog of medical journals in my office as I was eating lunch. Had to multitask. Can't just have lunch. <laughs> uh, and I came across a retrospective article. Uh, the um, Journal of the American Medical Association publishes it's a little historical tidbit. And it was about 100 years after... Dr. Uh, uh, Cushing described Cushing's disease. And I don't know if you're familiar with Cushing's disease or I'll just take a moment and describe it. It's, it's overactive adrenal glands and uh, which cause a whole variety of medical symptoms. And I was reading about the first person who had it. So she had, she was overweight, she had high blood pressure, at the time, there was no way to test for diabetes because there was no way to test sugar easily in the blood, but she had all of the, you know, having to urinate, having to drink a lot. Uh, she was infertile, didn't have her period and couldn't, couldn't have children. Uh, she had acne and, uh, and easy bruising of her skin. And she was at, and I thought, wait, that's everyone I saw today. Like in the morning, that wasn't everyone, but it was like, that was a substantial number of the people that I had seen that morning had 
that cluster of symptoms. And um, I was like, this condition has gone from being something rare enough to get written up in a medical journal to something that's completely common in a hundred years. What are we missing? What are we missing? And the, and the, the thought sort of binged into my head, maybe there's too much illness. Maybe there's not, it's not that we have a problem with too few doctors. Maybe there's just too much illness. And so that was the impetus that really made me say, I've got to figure this out. Like, this has got to be something that I figure out. There was that intellectual challenge, <laughs> which is one of the things I'll talk about later. Like, Well, I love that, you know, because you were open-minded though. You know, sometimes I get a laugh from people when I say, you know, sometimes the letters MD for some physicians mean medical deity. You know, <laughs> they, well, yeah, they yeah. Are, they honestly believe that they are the arbiters of all things medical and, and their minds are not open to things. Like when I went to one of my specialists and I said, you know, I do all these things. And she went, really? She said, well, I guess they can't hurt. And that was the limit of her understanding of all the natural and alternative healing things that I do to right. make sure that my motor keeps running well. So I love the fact that you were open-minded and said, ah, I can see expansive possibilities. I can see more. I can see avenues. I can see connections. I can be global with this and realize that there isn't just one right way. Maybe we need a lot of them. Right. Well, and the other thing that's important to remember is that medicine makes mistakes. I mean, it does. It's made mistakes. I mean, so I just think when I went to medical school, women were put on hormone replacement therapy after menopause because it was felt that that was going to decrease their rate of heart disease. And, you know, millions and millions and millions of women were treated with hormone and if you didn't get treated with hormones, you know, like doctors who weren't using that were like, uh, your insurance company would say, hey, you're not meeting the clinical guidelines or you could get booted out of your medical society. Like you were doing something against regulations. Well, you know, 30 years later, studies analyzed, guess what? Hormones increase the rate of heart disease. And so, you know, and medicine does this abrupt about face, but it doesn't, there's not that feeling from most doctors that you say, well, this is the limit of what we know now, but what we need to do is always make sure that we're looking at, is it really working? Is this yeah, I think you bring up a really good point because sometimes we decry the medical system, but every single one of us can only know what we know at this time with what we have to work with. And so, yes, you know, I was I was in menopause at a time when everybody's go, yay, what you need are pregnant mare's urine. Um, <laughs> let me make sure that you get some of that. And I took it and uh, I was relieved and I was glad because I was having hot flashes 
three times an hour. A little debilitating. Yes. Uh, <laughs> not really working. But um, then I said, oh, enough of this shortly thereafter and said, you know, I think I can make it, which I did. So I'm glad to hear that. And I think you're absolutely right. Let's not ever say, well, what were the medical people thinking? It was the times, what was available in terms of research and knowledge and money and things to learn things. And we get things with a little delay. They have to be studied and then they have to be vetted and then they tell us about it and then that's what happens. So I want to use our time together so wisely because I have so many questions. Great. So you, you talk about trusting our body. Explain that. How do we trust our body? Well, most people are walking around believing a set of false beliefs that I call the sickness myth. Things like my body's falling apart. Uh, if no one's ever recovered from this illness, there's no chance that I will. Uh, I'm going to die anyway, so what's the point? And, and we don't really realize how frequent that those those things come up in conversation. Everyone in my family has diabetes, so of course I'm going to get it. Well, no. You know, there, there, there are ways that we can alter how our body works uh, so that we actually have this deep sense of trust, that we can actually change our own, um, our own medical destiny, let's call, call it that. Because the truth is what we... Our, our future is not written in our DNA. We might want to think it is, and there's something comforting about that if you get a good DNA report, but it's not true. You know, we, our DNA is a dynamic document, if you will, that gets read and interpreted by our body based on the circumstances. Mm. And trust is one of those circumstances that causes the body to interpret the, you know, the information differently. And we've had so much information about epigenetics and fluidity and neuro, neurobiology and psychoneurobiology. <laughs> yeah, yeah. if you're listening and those words mean nothing to you, don't worry. It just means that there are a lot of shifting things that are giving us more information than ever about the variety of factors that are taken into consideration in our health in the moment. You know, for eight years, I owned a holistic health and yoga retreat center. And most of my clients were people with life-threatening diagnoses in their families. And they would engage in the kind of thinking when they came in that mm -hmm. you were just talking about, well, what can I do about it? And, you know, the first question I would ask is, let me just open your mind to the fact that you may have more choice than you think about living or passing. Which one are you moving toward? Because you can't sit in the rut in the middle. And, and they would say, oh, well, I, I prefer to, right? And then we go from there. And then after I'd worked with them for three days, their families would come because they wanted me to be able to communicate their deepest thoughts to their families. And, you know, sometimes it was this person really wants to live, but they are feeling constrained by family dynamics. They're, they're not feeling uh, uplifted or encouraged or supported. And sometimes it was they wanted me to communicate, I'm done. Please stop wanting me to do something different. Please stop demanding that I live on and that making me feel like there's something that is not good enough about me because I'm done. Right. 
And I think that that happens a lot. So in this learning to trust our bodies, it becomes important for us to realize the vast number of contributing factors there are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what you're saying. And then there are these people who are in a whole other place, Elizabeth, love to hear your take on this. What about those people who are in complete denial? There is nothing wrong with me or there is nothing I can do about what is supposedly wrong with me. Oh, (laughs) yes. Um, I wish I had a wonderful solution to that. Uh, (laughs) But what I do know is that um, I believe that our bodies are communicating with us all the time. And the body's going to keep knocking on the door. So maybe right now it's just severe back pain, but next it's going to be, you know, some stomach problem. And next it's going to be a knee that goes out or something along those lines until we're willing to listen to it. Because we're going to listen one way or another, but (laughs) but are we going to listen and respond? And um, you can't necessarily bring a person around to that if they're not ready. Uh, Lead a horse to water, can't make them drink. Yeah. Yes, yes, good stuff. And, you know, I think there's a direct relationship with our emotional life and the condition of our bodies. And I'm sure you believe that too. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I find is that people will, when they're with the, one of the toxic and relentlessly difficult people that I talk about, the hijackals of life, (laughs) um, that they, they tend to be worn down by this terribly and they're anxious all the time. And, you know, I was reading a piece of research by Dr. Gabor Mate in Canada, and he looked at and, and provided the statistic after a long study that people, women, women, not people, women who live with chronic stress and anxiety in their relationships, particularly, or chronic stress and anxiety generally that is intense are nine times more likely to find themselves with a breast cancer diagnosis. I wouldn't be surprised about that. Right. So, you know, when we think about that, and for my clients who are living with chronic stress and anxiety, I find that the majority of them have autoimmune dysfunction. Right. What's your, your thoughts on that? Oh, I have so many, (laughs) so many. Well, so the first thing is that I want to point out that the idea of stress and anxiety on a really a biologic, that nonverbal wisdom that we all carry, that means uh, your body is saying, I'm afraid I can't handle this. I'm afraid my survival is at stake. And that's why I talk about trust because the other end of that spectrum is I trust my body. Mm. And the, the really just cultivating that emotional state, and it's not just intellectual, it's really you know here and it's in your gut, literally turns on your parasympathetic nervous system, the part of your body that governs the restore and repair functions of your body. So the trust is not just a, an intellectual exercise, it's actually a physical feeling. Um, so, uh, that was the first thing I wanted to say. The second thing about, uh, people having, uh, you would mention the breast cancer and then whether or not that's related to illness. Uh, absolutely. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually recently looked up the top 10 causes of death that account for 74% of deaths in, in the United States. So I'm in, I'm in the U.S., so, but I think it's probably not that different. And if you look at the top ones, there are heart disease, there are cancer, there's uh, lung disease. All, you look at all of this list uh, and you realize that all of them can be easily related to stress. Like there is evidence out there that shows how the immune system does not function when it's stressed out. And when the immune system doesn't function, it actually produces cancer promoting cells and cancer promoting chemicals. So you, all of these things are related, even the crazy things like unintentional injuries and uh, which is a cause of third, third highest cause of death is unintentional accidents. And those, there's some pretty good studies that show that that can be related to your level of stress. I love the distinction because what is an intentional accident, you know? (laughs) Well, suicide is number 10, but unintentional injuries is number, uh, number three. So it's workplace injuries, traffic accidents, things like that. I I just love the idea of an unintentional (laughs) one. Well, is there an intentional one besides suicide? Uh, (laughs) The crazy people who are doing stuff for YouTube. That's (laughs) it. Right. And, and, you know, there are, there are intentional injuries that can lead to, or be a symptom of, you know, going in the wrong, in the direction of not wanting to get well, maybe cutting or um, using of substances that you know are risky or things like that. So I know that you've had an experience with a hijackal. (laughs) Yes. Did that have an effect on your health? Oh, it was horrible. It was it was predominantly the cause of I don't want to say it was 100% of my the cause of what the stress that was going on, but it, there was this deep constant sense of there's something wrong here. I can't figure out exactly what it is, but there's something wrong here. And it and and because it's me, I think oh my goodness, I mean because I'm me. I feel like it must be something wrong with me. I, I have to be able to change to make this work. I think I can organize and think my way out of this. Uh-uh. <laughs> no, it's interesting. You, you can't dance for two. That's my, my phrase for it. And we get into the place of thinking, I can do the work for me and for my partner. And right. then it'll be all right. And right. we overcompensate and we dance for two. Right. And you can't do it. And you know that old joke, I think most people have heard it, but how many psychotherapists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is only one, but the light bulb has to really want to change <laughs> And when you're with a hijackal, they really don't want to change. They are not going to change. They will entrench against change. And so there you are thinking, well, I can make myself into a pretzel. I can even lie down and be a doormat. And maybe that will be enough. And while you're doing that, you're actually suppressing your immune system, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. And and causing, well, so I will be really, really personal here. You know, my hijackal was my ex-husband and it was a long, very, very emotionally abusive relationship. And so part of my healing process of, uh, was getting a divorce and, and getting him out of my life. But, but he was still hanging around somewhere in the back of my mind. And, and 
I realized that this chronic left hip pain that I'd had for a very long time that didn't get better no matter what I did. I used to swallow ibuprofen like crazy. It was all him. It was all of my anger for him. And when I finally sat down and I did sort of a deep meditation and forgave him and I forgave myself for putting up with it for as long as I did, the hip pain was gone. And I, I don't take pain medicines for anything anymore. So it was amazing that I, that realization of, wow, mm -hmm. my pain is actually an emotion. I want to put a caveat in here for listeners who just went, oh, it's not that straightforward. Well, it's a factor. And it's that's a fact. what we're talking about. It's a factor. Yes, you may have trochanteric bursitis because you, you're prone to inflammation from some other cause. But maybe the inflammation is being exacerbated by the fact that you've got this hijackal who is always on your mind. And you know, right. you said something, Elizabeth, that's so important for those people. And I remember hijackals is my term that I trademarked for people who hijack relationships for their own purposes and then relentlessly scavenge them for power, status, and control. And you might know one of those toxic, difficult people. So what I wanted to add to your story is, yes, you can divorce one, but they lurk and linger. And they want you, you were their supply. And when you have exited their life and you think, I'm out of here, they are still saying, I need to have my fingers on you somewhere, right? right? Like there has to be a way that I could reach out to you and get supplied again. So they don't just go off into the ether and, and gently into that good night. They hang around. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and um, I was realizing I didn't 100% answer one of your questions earlier, but this brings it up. So that idea of autoimmune diseases. Mm -hmm. So when you are uh, feel like you're under attack, but you can't figure out why, because maybe you've divorced a person, well, your body is making antibodies and it's got to attack something. It's going to go after you. Mm. That's yeah. what I, th that, that I have no data to prove that, but I think that feeling of there must be something wrong. Maybe it's with me. Maybe it's with me. Why, do, why is this still going on? Well, your immune system is definitely getting revved up and it needs to, to attack something. Right. And then in order to remove the cause and then tone it down and tell the body, it's okay. Yeah. This is not going on any longer. That person is gone now. We may see them occasionally, but we're good. We can handle this. And you can relax into how confidence that you will keep yourself safe. A lot of the learning about coming out of a toxic relationship is learning how to keep yourself safe, to have the confidence that you will, right? Right, right. And, and you know, that that's what I'm up to in the world. And if you want to know more about what Elizabeth Hughes is up to in the world, go to elizabethhughesmd.com. I'm going to give you lots of things in the show notes where you can connect with her. You can get her, her stress antidote, and you want that, you get that at thestressantidote.com. And we're going to put that in the show notes for you too. So if you happen to be driving, don't worry. It's all there for you when you get home. Um, so 
how long did it take for the toll on your body of having been in a toxic relationship to really feel expunged? About a decade. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not surprised, Elizabeth, because the condition of the cells, you know, I tell people all the time, and, you know, I'm not a medical doctor. I went into medicine, found I was pregnant, and said I can't take a kid through <laughs> medical school. So I got a doctorate in psychology. <laughs> But, you know, I tell people, and, and especially those people who are, have severe um, conditions that have been diagnosed, that a diagnosis is a description of the condition of your cells at the moment it was looked at diagnostically. Right. Yes. From then on, hey, woohoo, you can do all kinds of things, you know. And, and of course, we've all heard this, that, you know, Cancer is a word, not a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. I hadn't heard that. <laughs> and so we need to open ourselves to the fact we're powerful. We can change the very construction of much of what's going on in ourselves. Right. I mean, when you think about the research recently on epigenetics and the fact that, as you said so wisely earlier, this DNA is not written in stone, um, that there is fluidity in this, that environment plays a large part. You know, I'm always talking about hijackles, of course, that's my thing. But, but the fact is that many kinds of personality disorders are ones that are made after birth, the after birth environment and what, what happened to you in that whole period of time as you were growing up. And only one of those hijackal types is actually born with that predisposition. And even mm -hmm. at that, if the environment that they're born into does not support that aberration at all, it won't happen. Wow. Yeah. So it's important for us to realize the, the place of, of environment and the relationships that we're in. And then, as you're so wisely reminding us, the relationship we have with our body. Because some people don't even realize that. They think that, that their body is kind of a result. And when you get a diagnosis, then that's the result of your body. <laughs> <laughs> like you've just been put down that, like that shoot, like, voom, it's going to just happen. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm very interested in Ayurveda. So I know that you have a yogic background, as I do. And then I studied Ayurveda for a long time. And when you come to know yourself at that level, what is your body based on? In the Ayurvedic system, it's going to be based on air or water or fire, mostly, or some combination of those three right. exists in everybody. And then when you actually start thinking about that from a psychological point of view, as well as a physiological point of view, and you get some insights, you know, great things can happen. What's your experience with alternative healing modalities? Well, I... Um... I'm, I think we were talking just briefly. I'm for what works, you know, like better is better. And I don't have this um, need to be, oh, but it's only better if I do it. I, I believe that the body has an unbelievable capacity to heal itself. But however that comes to you, as long as it doesn't come at the expense of some other portion of your health, that's okay. That's great. So uh, I've seen people, you know, I do practice yoga. I have 
not as much uh, Ayurveda experience as you do, but I'm very, I'm familiar with it. I do some energy medicine work and I've seen people have amazing results, sometimes with just, you know, just a little shift of belief that, that can make all the difference. And, and I do believe that all of those, um, you can't, you can't discount all of those, uh, extraordinary cancer patients, the people with the end diagnosis or, or anything like that who get better. Like there are people walking around who've had strokes who were told they'd never walk again. Guess what they are. There are people who said you had, you know, two months to live tops who are walking around here. You can't ignore that. And medicine wants to, wants to, if, if they can't take credit for it, they totally dismiss it. <laughs> Well, yeah, I I certainly have had that experience, you know, like even uh, talking to specialists and they'll say, well, that's the way it is. And, you know, I have conversations with them and say, nothing's written in stone. There's all kinds of possibilities. There's all kinds of ways that you can approach this. And sometimes you get the old raised eyebrow. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Well, I'll I'll tell you sort of in my, uh, my, my coaching practice, probably about 40% of people who see me are medical professionals yeah. trained conventionally. Uh, I, doctors, even naturopaths, nurses, they're tough nuts to crack. It's okay, but there's a little, there's a whole lot of unlearning that has to happen before the real growth and, and healing can occur. <laughs> Well, they've had a lot of validation for being the smartest person in the room as soon as they went through that training. And, of course. You know, and sometimes they'll come to me and they'll say, you know, I'm putting out this all the time as though I'm the most confident, healthy person in the world. And I know that I'm, I have emotional toxicity. Mm-hmm. And what can we do about that? And I can right. certainly talk with them. But I want to ask two more questions for sure Please. before we end. And could you define for folks what you mean when you say energy medicine? So, well, for me, what I do is I work with subconscious beliefs. I have a couple of different ways that I do that. But I invite people during that process to really be uh aware of how their body feels. um, I guess that's the easiest way to say. And people will notice during the time that there will be some sort of shift, some sort of like a feeling of expansiveness or a feeling of calm or a feeling of surety that occurs during that process. Um, Because I do believe that uh, that that energy, that, that sort of feeling state, which is really what I think I'm, I'm equating energy with, that feeling state is the basis of our, our lives in general, <laughs> you know, like what, how you walk around. And I think you would agree with me, but correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, when, when we do believe something and when we open ourselves to the fact that maybe I could expand that belief, there's energy that comes in. Absolutely. Well, this is this is the you know it, you look at great artists. This is their creative muse. An idea drops in. I can expand. I can do something different. And there is an energy, a movement. Uh, yeah, I had this 
a thing, and I, I think it's worth sharing even if we do go over, um, because I was, um, my friend was in the hospital. She was on a breathing tube, and, and she'd been uh, working really hard at her health. She was a very well-known person, and she'd done grand rounds at the Royal College of Surgeons and the hospitals in London and all this kind of thing, and we shared a lot of things, and then she said, don't come to the hospital till I'm off this breathing tube. So one evening, after she'd been off the tube uh, that day, and she'd been in the hospital for five days, I got a text, and it said, I think I'm leaving. And I wrote back, not wanting to be assumptive, and I said, leaving what? And she said, this life. And I said, are you at peace? And she said, yes, I am. And I said, do you want to talk? And she said, yes. I said, when? She said, now. And I went, mm-hmm. and we talked about all these things. But here's the piece um, that was really astounding. Four days before she invited me to come on that particular evening, I had a dream. And the dream was about she and I talking. And I had said to her in this dream, you know, What I really understand is that we've both made significant contributions to this world in our fields and that both of us are very expansive. We can see connections. We can see possibilities. We can see what to do next. We can see how to do it. But, you know, if each of us passed right now, we would have made a significant contribution. And when I went to her on that Friday evening, I told her about the dream. And you could, honest, I could see it just meant everything. She just relaxed. Wow. Yeah. And as it turned out, she told me just after I told her, she said, they finally diagnosed me today. Now, for 14 months, she had been going to every practitioner she could. And they diagnosed her finally after so many times to the allopathic physician, she said, I have an ALS. Wow. And so we talked about that. And I said, so what's your decision? She said, she was a singing teacher. And she said, if I can't speak, I'm done. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, speaking of energy, (laughs) she (laughs) said, well, what do you think I need? How, how does a person die? And I said, Maribeth, I've never done it, but I've got a, an idea. <laughs> and I said, I think if you just, you know, because we're both meditators. So I said, you know how you kind of sink down into different levels of meditation? What if you just kept going and letting go? What if it's like yogic shavasana, But you just keep going and letting go and letting go and letting go. And she said, that makes sense to me. And I Uh said, well, you know, no experience in the matter. (laughs) Best guess. (laughs) And so we talked about all kinds of, of spiritual things. And the next day they moved her to hospice. And so she was very busy and didn't want me to come. And the following day I went to hospice. She had already gone into that state, never to come out of it again. She passed within two days of making that decision and letting go. So I think energetically that's a good story of how 
we interact with our thoughts and our feelings and our beliefs and what that reflects in our physical health. Oh, absolutely. And it's also a beautiful story of, of how you were able just to to meet her where she was. I mean, and other friends might've said, no, you can't die. You can't give up. Fight, 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 fight. And that probably would, that was not what she needed. It what didn't serve her energy at this point. So oh, beautiful story. Thank you for sharing. Well, you're welcome. And I think that's why she called me because she knew that we could converse at that level yeah. and that we didn't have a strong belief in this is all there is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But I want to I want to close by being sure to ask you this question. What do you think is the most important subconscious belief that you have that can change your health? Um, it's I'm trying I'm flipping between three right now. I think it, the most important one that most people will help with is that if the doctor says there's nothing I can do, there's nothing I can do. It's chronic there's nothing we can do. There is. And, and if you can have that belief that there is something you can do, wow, you, everything will shift. And you want to do it. And you want to do it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But that, you know, that, that, deep tr that deep feeling of there's a way to change this situation and I know I have it within me to do it. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the understanding of capacity has to be coupled with the understanding of willingness. Yes. Right? Until, yes. until that penny drops, it can be really, really um, not something that comes into your consciousness. And maybe you won't adopt it or adapt right. to it. Or you pull away from it a little bit. Like, ooh, really? Do I have to do it? <laughs> You know, I, I can tell the story now that she's passed, but I was speaking on uh, the same, in the same program, the same conference with Louise Hay in the 80s, and um, we were having coffee afterwards, and, and I said to her, um, you know, I love your book, but I can't give it to my patients, and she said, why not? <laughs> Like me, I have to be responsible for healing my life. <laughs> and I said, no, it's not because of any of that. It's because I have to rip out the first five pages if I do. And she said, well, why would you have to do that? And I said, because you basically are very clearly blaming the person with the ailment or the condition. And when someone has just had a diagnosis, that's really not helpful. Right. <laughs> so, you know, she was kind of shocked by that. But I said, I, I just can't. It, it doesn't help me help a person who's in fear and concern and disarray to hear you did this to yourself. You what did you do to create this? You know, the question is, if I had anything to do with creating this, what would I change? Yeah. Right. Very, right, very right. different approach. Right, right. Yeah. Well, is there any parting thought that you would like to share that we haven't covered, Elizabeth? Um, well, I just, I just want to, you know, follow up on that statement. It's like, you may or may not be responsible, but you always have the ability to respond. And that's where you can take 
that's where you can take it, you know? Yes. And that's so important. And you can respond in this minute, no matter what you did up to this minute. Right. And that's the exciting thing. There is always the opportunity of a new beginning. So thank you for being my guest today. It's really been my pleasure. Thank you. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Hughes. You find her at Elizabeth Hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S-M-D.com. Elizabeth Hughes, You just heard a wealth of tidbits that she's given. So those little tidbits are just the top of mountains she has to share with you. And you want to go and find that. And she has a free gift for you. The link is in the show notes, but I'll give it to you. It is her stress antidote guide, and you find it at thestressantidote.com. It's been a really exciting thing to talk with Dr. Elizabeth, and I hope that you've enjoyed it. Tell your friends. They may want to hear this too because it may be just what they need right now. If you want to see Elizabeth, remember ElizabethHughesMD.com. If I can help you in any way, go to TransformingRelationship.com. My podcasts are there. I have two of them. You can also reach my YouTube channel for FOR Relationship Help. You'll find over 400 videos there to help you. So much for you. And if you want to talk to me directly, go to BeAClient.com. Unbelievable. I own that domain. <laughs> BeAClient.com. Until we talk again, take very good care of yourself because you matter. You are precious and treat yourself that way. Talk soon. Thanks for being here for today's episode of Emotional Savvy. If you want to deepen your emotional savvy, make shifts in your relationships, and enjoy life and relationships more, work with me, Dr. Roberta Shaler. Get my books, enjoy my courses, or work with me directly. You can do that by visiting forrelationshiphelp.com, F-O-R, relationship, H-E-L-P.com, and subscribe to Tips for Relationships now. Don't miss a thing. Be empowered this week with more emotional savvy.